partnership. You, evil incarnate. Me, your good friend Eddie Hyde. Think about it. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Dark Universe fanboy, Andrew Raphael. Yeah, I'm still waiting for the other films, mate. And today we're once more joined by friend of the show, Aidan Belazer, returning for a third episode. We asked him to leave, folks, but like an STD in a brothel, he has more to give. Hello, (laughs) Aidan! So much more, just so much more, and you don't want it. Or do you? Well, we'll soon find out. (laughs) And you join us today for our discussion of The Mummy. No, not that one. Or that one. Yes, the shit one. (laughs) But before we begin to unravel this creature feature, it's time to roll the trailer. Or at least, some of the audio. Pan, 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 this is November 4-0-9-er-9-er. What the hell? Uh... A bright start to a whole new cinematic universe led by a vibrant and charismatic lead with a snappy script that promises more popcorn delights to follow. But that's enough about Iron Man, it's time to talk about... (sighs) The Mummy. Everyone's favourite full-time kook and part-time actor Tom Cruise is Nathan Drake's less successful brother Nick in Uncharted 5, The Mummy Returns. Directed by the man who spread excrement across the pages that became the scripts to Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, Star Trek Into Sharpness, and Picard, comes The Mummy, the first in Universal's Dark Universe. Now, if you don't know what Universal's Dark Universe is, well, it's a collection of cross-media monster movie-related films, TV shows, books, and video games that in a uniquely bold creative choice for a cinematic universe, consists of just one film. (laughs) So, my guys, <laughs> where do we begin on Alex Kurtzman's The Mummy? Is it Alex Kurtzman's The Mummy? Is that the question we need to be asking? Or is it Tom Cruise's The Mummy? I think it should be Tom Cruise's The Mummy, by the sounds of things. So, just to begin, before this episode, had you guys actually seen the 2017 Tom Cruise starring The Mummy? No. Um, no. <laughs> Sorry, I already <laughs> forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Have, have we seen it? Have we? <laughs> Let me think. No, I saw I saw Mummy Impossible. Oh no, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does very much have that feeling to it, and it is a very forgettable film. I think I've mentioned before this podcast started that it's very much like diarrhea; it runs right through you. <laughs> I guess the thing is, before we actually begin discussing the Mummy, I want to speak about the Mummy, uh, the Brendan Fraser starring Mummy. So, uh, do you guys have any familiarity with those films as well? The original. I say the original in air quotes. Trilogy? <laughs> yeah. The, the, the trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> I have the most memories of the first one. I think I've never seen the second one once, and I've never seen the third one. Um, I've seen... <clears throat> sorry, I was just drinking coffee. <clears throat> I've seen the first Stop one. Professional. And the... <laughs> 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 never, never back. 
Oh. <laughs> I've seen I've seen the first one and the second one, and I just I just feel like due to the level of memeity, how famous yeah. the Scorpion King shot is, I feel like I've seen oh, that. Yeah. I've not actually seen it. <laughs> oh, what really? You've never actually seen the Mummy Returns? Wait, is that the third one? Is that the third one? No, that's the second one. Yeah. Wait, what's the third one? Is there a third one? Oh, uh, the t- Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. It's the one with Jet Li in it, where it has no actually technically no mummy in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they replaced Rachel Weisz with... Um, Maria Bello. That's the one. It was very, like, much a belated sequel. Right, okay, so let me start again. I've seen the first one. I have <laughs> seen the second one and completely forgot about it, apart from one shot with bad VFX. And mm-hmm. I have not yeah. seen the third one. <laughs> yeah. I've seen... Um, I actually have seen The Scorpion King as well, actually, I think. The uh, the spin-off movie. I watched that not too long ago as well. Mm. I remember it's another one of those films that David Hayter was involved in. Yeah, yeah. I think he wrote it. Uh, David Hayter, for anybody who doesn't know, is the voice of Solid Snake, so that's what I know him from. But yes, The Scorpion King, it was on TV not long ago, and it's it, it's like a direct-to-DVD romp, really, like adventure romp. It's actually probably better than the Mummy sequels, just by virtue of knowing what it is and just being a bit silly with it. I remember it being bland, but doesn't have any ridiculously embarrassing moments or anything. It's a lot more stripped back than uh, The Mummy Returns. Yeah. Wait, I'm getting confused now. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the listeners' benefit, well, you guys have just been talking. I've just been fucking, just trying to remember anything. Who am I? Wait, so there's four original Mummy films. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh shit. Okay. Right. In that case, <laughs> well, there's not just four. There's three original Mummy films, and then there's a series of Scorpion King spin-off yeah, there's films. Multiple Scorpion King films. Only the first Scorpion King film, and which is all like based in the past, starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson. It's a prequel. Yeah. Only right. the first one made it to the cinema, and the rest of them were released direct to DVD. And that's the one with the infamous, really no, bad no. CG. The second Mummy film, The Mummy Returns. Oh, right. So what I said earlier sticks. Yeah. Yes, it does, yeah. In fact, I think <laughs> cool. you were doing quite well until this point, in which you've made a complete fool of yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I bring to this. You've got two, two hosts who have an encyclopedic filmic knowledge, and me. <laughs> well, this is what we brought you on board for. It's just to like contextualise our Wikipedia knowledge of yeah. these films. And yeah, we probably shouldn't be calling these the original Mummy films, because they're not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because they're remakes themselves. So I guess the answer that we were going for is, have we seen the, the original trilogy? <laughs> Air quotes. Yes. <laughs> so, well, half um, of it. I, I would say that I actually really like the first Mummy film, the first Stephen Summers Mummy yeah. film. It's a lot of fun. It's like a diet Indiana Jones film that is a better Indiana Jones film than Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls by quite some margin. Yeah. Yeah. That is the best one. It's the only really good one. The Mummy Returns has its moments. I think it's still actually quite an enjoyable watch, just even for its badness. And the Dragon Emperor film is just unwatchable. Yeah, I think the second one especially is just so overblown, has some pretty questionable effects. And I think the main thing that, that weakens it is the annoying kid in it. Yes. Fucking horrendous. And it's always the British kid, isn't it, as well? <laughs> yeah, but it's like a British kid written by an American writer who doesn't know how yeah. to write British kids. And then they have a shitty child actor on there as well, so it's just shit upon shit. <laughs> yeah. It's clearly people that don't know how British kids talk. Yeah. There's that Turkish Airlines advert at the moment with that American kid talking on it, and it reminded me of that. It's just like, it's those kids that you just want to punch. I'm glad you could 
contextualize that for all of our listeners that yeah. they instantly go, oh, the Turkish Airlines. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what it's going to date this episode about. so badly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was wondering what Andy was going on about, but then he mentioned Turkish Airlines and now I'm on board. Well, Turkish Airlines did sponsor Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. So, Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, it did. It had the Gotham. <laughs> yeah, Doomsday's got Turkish Airlines tattooed on the back of his head. <laughs> People are going to pause the podcast just to go to Turkish Airlines website. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, I hope they go through the final fight in Batman vs Superman and looking for that tattoo. <laughs> Popcorn Digest sponsored by Turkish Airlines. Wish I'd mentioned it now. <laughs> when I travel, I travel like a Turk. Turkish Airlines. <laughs> okay, that's enough about that. So we're going to move past the Mummy, and we're now going to start speaking about the Mummy, the Tom Cruise starring film. So, are we going to mention the the original Mummy? <laughs> Like the the Boris Karloff version. Yeah, I mean, we really should mention the moment. I've not seen it actually. I haven't. I don't think many people have, to be honest. I've seen it. I've watched it on Blu-ray. I've got the Universal box set, but it's been some time. I would say it's one of the lesser of the yeah, uh, yeah. monster movies from that period because I, I went through all of them in like a couple of nights because they're all only about like seventy or eighty minutes yeah. or something. A very easy watch, but that one's it's okay, but it's not the best of that lot of films. And it's I think it's probably just known more for Boris Karloff as well and being part of that era. But for me, it's never been the most successful of the Mummy films. And I actually have, when it comes to the Mummy and as a character, I have a I don't know a situation with that character where. I feel like filmmakers across the board are always in a rush to brush over the best parts of those films, which is when it's a universal monster that looks like a monster. I always feel like they try very quickly to, um, as the film series has gone on, they've tried more and more rapidly to get it towards a human figure rather than having it be some sort of monstrous ancient evil thing. And that's always been an issue for me, and I think it's a real issue with this film as well. Mm. Is it a Hammer film? Yeah, no, it's a. I think Hammer Horror have Hammer Horror done their own. I'm pretty sure they have. Film. I think they might have done they like Curse done. of the Mummy's Hand or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Ghost of the Mummy's Dick. <laughs> thing. That's the porn one. That, yeah. Unravel me, baby. You'll need plenty of bandages <laughs> to, to clean up. Oh, 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 I'm glad you clarified to clean up, mate. <laughs> so, because when I'm done with you, I'm just imagine like a like a phantom penis floating in the air. It's like no, it'd be like the hand from Adam's family, but but just a penis. Like oh, it'll move like one of those maggots that you eat, like one of those pulsating juicy maggots. Oh, I actually saw a Frank Henlotter film that had a dick, a rogue dick in it, and I can't remember what it's called now. But it had a dick in it that like it, this guy had a dick that was just like it was crazed and it just wanted to have sex with everybody. So it used to detach itself from his body and like burst through walls and stuff as it's running from like room to room to go find somebody to shag. Wow. It wasn't a porno, I promise. Okay, all right. It's a Frank Henlotter movie. Mm. I can't remember what it's called though. I believe you. Yeah, thank you. Rogue dick on the other hand sounds like Star Wars porn for sure. <laughs> I can see you writing that down in your notes, mate. <laughs> you may laugh at me now, but I know as soon as this is done, straight on the internet there, you porn. I'm already on company's house trademarking that right now. <laughs> 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 the intellectual property office is like, well, this guy's weird. <laughs> <laughs> so that's enough about mummies and, uh, I don't know, rogue Floating dicks. dicks. Yeah. yeah, ghost dicks, rogue dicks. It's all dick mad today. 
<laughs> it's time to actually talk about the mummy. I mean, I've been trying to say this for the last 15 minutes, guys, but you keep interrupting. So it's time to talk about the mummy. And I think the journey to 2017's The Mummy and the Dark Universe in general actually begins with The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. So that film was released in 2008. And although it was a modest hit, it grossed $400 million based on a $145 million budget. It was still a critical flop. And more importantly, it was very poorly received by the fan base as well. And I also think at that point with the Mummy series, uh, it's come out much later beyond the fact that Brendan Fraser, during the making of those films, was actually encountering some quite significant health problems due to some of the practices involved in making those films, like essentially all of the stunt work that he had to do, the physical demands of being in those films. And he did say, I remember in an interview very recently, that he was actually having injections on set to make him able to shoot the material that was required immediately. Wow. So we look at things like his weight gain and that type of thing following these films. That's all been a part of like quite significant back problems that have occurred after these films and because of these films. So really, making a Brendan Fraser mummy film, that was something that was very quietly taken off the table. And so they were looking for what to do with the series next. And I think really the next thing that happened was Iron Man came out and the Marvel Cinematic Universe came out and then suddenly all of the studios were falling over themselves to find the next cinematic universe. Yeah. We talk about the mummy being the beginning of the dark universe, but I think it actually Dracula Untold they try to retrofit as being the first in this series if yeah. uh, if anybody has seen that film as well. Yeah. I think also as well after the third mummy film we had all that debacle with the remake of The Wolfman as well which is uh, another Popcorn Digest episode plug. <laughs> but yeah, that I think all of that combined with the rise of the MCU obviously made them completely sort of rethink how they mm. wanted to approach their monster movies going forward. I mean, I actually I would actually think this film would really benefit from having the creative integrity of Joe Johnston's The Wolfman, <laughs> to be fair. Well, having a director who joined two weeks into production. Exactly. <laughs> well, having a director, because yeah, if yeah, there's yeah. anything about this film, it's that it doesn't have a director. Yeah, it needed somebody like a seasoned director. Yeah. In terms of the direction... He has no vision, and he also doesn't have the experience to execute what is a very turbulent production anyway. And kind of failed upwards into this job, Alex Kurtzman. I mean, that that's Alex Kurtzman all over, failing upwards. <laughs> that should be the name of his book. Yeah. Failing upwards, my story. <laughs> the Alex Kurtzman story. Fuck gravity. <laughs> my story begins as a failed abortion. <laughs> oh, <fuck. laughs> Wow. Wow, this got dark really quick. It got dark universe really quick. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh I'm not well, so that's, that's my excuse. Yeah. But, um, yeah, did, did, has anyone seen Dracula Untold? I imagine you have, Gaz. Uh, yes, yes, I have. I'm one of the three people that have seen it. <laughs> um, Luke Evans, Luke is Evans. that right? And, and Charles Dance as well. Yep. Like, mm -hmm. Charles Dance is being set up as the Nick Fury of the yeah. universe in, in this film as well. It's not very good. I don't like films that take villainous roles and then try and make them to be like overly sympathetic superhero movies. Like I said that about Maleficent as well, even though I appreciate what that 
that that at least did something different with yeah. the material. I still don't like films where they take someone that's really known for being a villain and then making them some sort of anti-hero. Yeah. It's just boring. It's like been done a thousand times. Yeah. There's a villain that's villainous. But isn't that hitting the hail on the net? Uh, sorry. Isn't that hail, the, the hail <laughs> on the net? Hadley <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it, ho. Isn't that, <laughs> but isn't that hitting the nail on the head? as to why this dark universe was always doomed to fail, because they would have had to have done that with almost all of these films. Yes, exactly right. And I think it was it was something that I said actually about Dracula Untold, is that by setting up these series as being the, like, the superhero equivalent, the monster movie superhero equivalent, it's kind of like exactly how he's mentioned, undercutting their power as villains, because they should be the antagonists of their films. And I get that with the Universal Monsters that they all have like, well, some of them, like the Wolfman, for example, has a sympathetic element of that character. But some of them, like Dracula and like the Mummy, they're very much more told in the vein as, you know, these are our villains. These are some things that are supposed to be scary. They're not sympathetic. And I don't know yet, yeah, the, the thing of making them the people that we root for in these films is really like undoing their legacy in essence. It was destined to fail, this dark universe idea. You've got a sort of a villainous team-up film, say like Suicide Squad, that works because it's just so quirky. And the characters are a little bit batshit and mental and yeah. funny. But it's one film or, or two films if it's with the sequel, right? It's not the origin stories and then, like you say, yeah, like rooting for a full film of where you should they are both the antagonist and well, the protagonist. We're saying the Suicide Squad has worked in comic book form up until now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see what happens with this new one. So going back to the making of this film, just to lay down some more context before we uh, really start to get into what works and what doesn't work. And I will say that what doesn't work list is going to be much longer on my side. Mm. As mentioned, at this point, Tomb of Dragon Emperor's come out and it's underperformed with the fans. Also, you have things like Iron Man coming out, the Marvel Cinematic Universe being established, Dracula Untold has come out as well, and Universal are looking to establish their own cinematic universe, and so they look towards the monster movie catalogue of, well, movie icons, essentially. And so, in 2012, they announced plans for a The Mummy reboot. And I will say, it's been through several writers, as you can see in the credits. I think it's got a credited list of six writers in total. Mm -hmm. And before it actually settled with Alex Kurtzman as the director, it went through Len Wiseman and... Is it Andre Muschietti? Muschietti? Andy Muschietti, yeah. Andy Muschietti, yeah. Yeah. Uh, The director of It. Um, It went through Len Wiseman and uh, Andre Muschietti, or Andy Spaghetti before oh my god i keep saying i'm going to say spaghetti it's, it sounds like either a weapon or an italian coffee it, it does i think it's more an italian coffee than a weapon but yeah so it, it went through those directors before it settled with alex kurtzman and alex kurtzman really got the job because he had a pre-existing relationship with tom cruise from their time working together on mission impossible 3 because he was the uh, the writer on that film but obviously uh Robert Orsi, or is it Roberto Orsi? Mm-hmm. Roberto Orsi. Roberto Orsi, or Orsi? Was it Orsi? Yeah. I don't know. It's not important. So yes, Tom Cruise joins the film in 2015, and that's when it's officially announced as being a Tom Cruise joint. Sophia Batella was brought on shortly afterwards, based on her performance on The Kingsman. So really, that's the context that brings us up to the making of the film. I've got some information about the turbulent set behind the scenes. 
and uh, some of the uh, some of the stories that have come out post release and what some of the writers have said about their time working on a, on a film that I will get into later I might might provide that more towards the stats and facts. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, do hang in there. We're gonna bullshit for a while first. So <laughs> so where do we begin with Alex Kurtzman's The Mummy? Well, I think personally, you mentioned it, Andy. I think it's saying whose film is this? Is it Alex Kurtzman's or is it Tom Cruise's? What does it feel like? I would say it's a bit of both because you can see where Tom Cruise has tried to dominate in places, but then you have that Alex Kurtzman lack of vision and direction. And I would say it's a rare Tom Cruise film where even Tom Cruise can't save the movie. Yeah. I mean, Tom Cruise has been in some clunkers, but he's still been the best thing in the film. Uh, even if the rest of the film's shit. I'm trying to think, maybe, I was thinking, hmm, maybe this is like Mission Impossible 2, because that's maybe another example yeah. where he didn't quite save the movie. But I think that's the thing about Tom Cruise for me, is I quite like him as an actor, even though as, as a person he comes across as a complete kook. <laughs> I quite like him as an actor because he's got like old school Hollywood screen presence. I think he embodies that kind of old Hollywood way of filmmaking as well, that star-driven Hollywood picture. That Seeing him in films makes me feel nostalgic for that era of filmmaking as well when I see his type of films. But he's got where he is, not because he's got the greatest range in the world, because I don't think that Tom Cruise is the most versatile actor working out there. He certainly has his moments, but he's not Daniel Day-Lewis. And I think he's just quite good at picking and choosing the films that he is involved in and the people that he surrounds himself with. And I also think that the reason why he's got where he is is because he has screen presence. And it's weird in this film, because not only is it a poorly chosen film to be involved in, but within it, he has no screen presence or charisma. If I was showing somebody this film as their first Tom Cruise film and then telling them that guy in the middle of the screen right there is an action star, one of the biggest action stars, I don't think that they would agree with me <laughs> or even believe me. He's a void in this film. Uh, yeah, if you told somebody like an alien, this is the, one of the biggest movie stars in the last 30 years, <laughs> you'd be like, what the fuck? The tone. His tone, rather, is really is just way off. Yeah, there's times when he's slapstick, stand-up funny. I, I thought anyway. Oh, there's a bit later on where um, she's got him on the the mummy demon woman. She has him on a table and she like gets this knife and he does this oh kind of like look <laughs> when when she pulls a knife on him and um I don't know just it's so strange to watch it's like he's been directed to be quack shop comedy in some shots and then serious in other shots and then romantic charisma in other shots that whole scene is weird as well because that's the bit where he shouts out jenny as she enters the room and is like shocked into silence by the sight and she's just stood there making weird noises like <laughs> and you're like what <laughs> but the, the whole the whole way that even yeah. the comedy moments like that where it's supposed to be a comedy beat where she's walked into something it shocks her into murmuring nonsense and he tells her to run. And it's supposed to be a comedy beat, but because the editing is so weird, everything's like mistimed and is dwelled on too long. And it's like, it hits all the wrong moments. I've got written down here that it's because she's, what are we calling her? What's her name? Like the mummy demon? Demon mummy? Mummy? Oh, what's the bloody name? Mummy. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> it's like Amu, Amu Tet or something. I don't know. It's one of, one of the A's. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... I think what they've tried to do is, because she walks in when the mummy is on top of Tom Cruise, 
kind of like in a sexual position. And yeah. I think they've tried to play on that. Mm. So she, she reacts as if she walked in on her love interest with another woman. Yes. But it's in a moment where he's going to be killed. <laughs> You're right. I think that's supposed to be the setup, isn't it? That's what it's supposed to look like. I've never thought about that because of just how weird the whole thing comes off. Yeah. And it's mm. Amina. I've just remembered it's Amina. Amina. Amina, yeah, that's it. Amina, Amina. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't that Jenny bit a part of it? Was it an orange advert? Yes, it was. About to turn off your mobile phones. Yeah. And it feels like it's been shot for that advert more so than it has for the film itself. (laughs) Wait, what's this? What's the advert? There was a bit in the, you know, the the movie trailer crawl, like, you know, when you get, when you watch a film and you have your advert reel and then your your trailer reel, there was a, a turn off your phone PSA. Yeah, and it featured the mummy. It was obviously around the time when the mummy was was out or about to be released, and it used part of that scene. I think it was like they recut it so Tom Cruise yeah. goes Jenny, and she like, and she had a phone on. Yeah, like her phone. ringtone goes off, and they all yeah. turn around and look at her. And I thought they just shot that bit for the advert. It seems yeah. like it. <laughs> so I was quite surprised when I saw it turn up in the actual film. I will say, I mean, to go at this from a chronological order. I saw this film at the cinema. It's another one of those films where I knew it was going to be bad before I saw it, and I wanted to see it at the cinema b- yeah. because of its reputation. And it didn't disappoint me. I really enjoyed its badness. It very much reminded me of Life Force. Yeah. But I will say that I know that I'm in trouble when I'm watching a film of this type, where before we even see the title, the main titles of the film, we're introduced to three separate time periods. Yep, that's when you know you're in trouble because yeah, th- th- there's a prologue for the prologue. <laughs> exactly, you know straight away that oh shit, they haven't figured out how to properly communicate all of this exposition. Yeah, so they're doing it in the dumbest way that they can, which is just simply here's a scene, there's a scene, there's a scene. The titles. Let's start. Yeah, I mean, going even going before that, I think I have to applaud them for having the balls to create a dark universe logo Fuck and theme man. tune to put yeah. in front of their movie. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of any other film series that has done that. Yeah. All the other cinematic universes that have come about, none of them had, like, you know, Iron Man was a standalone movie. Uh, Man of Steel was a standalone movie when it came out. And then it was only afterwards that they announced that was going to be the first installment mm-hmm. of a series. And I'm pretty sure when the MCU started, it was very much more organic because you had Iron Man and then you had the Incredible Hulk and they were sort of connected, but not really. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure some other ones have been like that. But yeah, to open your movie with that. And then, uh, I mean, I'm not sure when is a good time to talk about that Photoshop image as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, have you seen that, Aiden? Of the like the the whole group of people together, the uh, all of the actors that they had assembled, like Johnny Depp and Javier Bardem. I know that Angelina Jolie had been cast as a Bride of Frankenstein, but she wasn't included in the photo shoot. They never managed to get her for that shoot itself. But it's become quite infamous. Yeah, um, Andy, you actually showed it to me. Mm. But then did he also show you the photo shoot picture from the Mummy? No. Or did you? Oh no, sorry. I've I, was, seen the one- I was making a poor dick joke when you say Andy, you actually showed it to me. I was like, oh yeah, but also show you the publicity stuff. It works better now that I've explained it. Oh. <laughs> Actually, talk, talking about the exposition, I've, um, I've just got three notes on that at the start, right? The first one is exposition heavy at start snore. The second one is Russell Crowe's voiceover sounds like ASMR. It's, it, I felt like it was, it was in my ear. Like, I think he's just gui- guiding you to sleep. His voice was in my ear, let me clarify. <laughs> yeah, no, like like I could feel his wet breath 
on my yeah. lap. Oh, he has got that like gravelly voice, hasn't he? It's very earth tone. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't remember it, but I've got here real quote at start. Lol. What's that even in reference to? The quote at the start. There's a quote, and it just—I think they tried to make it based it, on a true story. Oh no, there was there is a quote at the beginning, but I oh, there is, it. isn't there? There is. I've already forgotten about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, this film as well. Again, in the direct opening, it has something that I hate in films. Another one of my tropes is when they use BBC news footage that they've obviously shot themselves, and it looks nothing like the BBC. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, the first three things I have for that opening all have question marks at the end. So I'm like, prologue for prologue. (laughs) And why do they use Crossrail? Because it doesn't tie into anything later on. And also, the most important thing, why is Russell Crowe narrating to us? Like, he just suddenly starts for no reason. Yeah, he's not even talking to anyone. It feels like something they've done in post, just to try and cover some cracks. I have a feeling that the mummy flashback didn't come at that point. Yeah. But in the edit, they've had to add it on there. I think that we didn't actually get to see who she was in the past until she um, possessed Tom Cruise's character, Nick. I think that was when we were supposed we were actually supposed to be introduced to the tomb first and then get the flashback as to what happened to her when she possessed Tom Cruise. Yeah, yeah. I think in the edit, they've decided, oh, shit. This beginning is not working. I think the thing that they actually thought was, oh shit, this film is not working. And mm. then, when, and like, have they moved everything around? That's been a casualty of it. That whole thing's been put right to the front. And they've had to add that narration on to just yeah, yeah. tie it all together. But it still doesn't work. I actually think they've done, they've tried to do a sneaky thing, really, which is, um, you know, there's a lot of things like um, with exposition is you, you show rather than tell. But yeah. what they've done is they've just shown a visual representation of the voiceover. Mm-hmm. That's very lazy filmmaking, yeah. in my opinion. Because oh, it the, is. It, it, he's talking like, and then she stabbed her husband. And then we just see her stabbing her husband. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than establishing that's her husband, no need for the voiceover, and watching her stab it, we can understand that she stabbed her husband. Yeah. It's like they're trying to make it so that there's a better way to, for this exposition dump. But in actual fact, they've literally just filmed the voiceover as if it was a shooting script. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I think as well that the way in which they've laid this out, even though they do have a visual representation as to what happened, it still does fit into that telling category, that they're just telling us what happened. Because of the way that the information is just laid out to us, in three separate flashbacks, we just get, well, in three separate time periods, we just get essentially information laid out to us. This is not the characters coming across this information or learning this information in a exciting and energetic way or in an adventurous way. This is just the writer telling us and the filmmaker just saying, telling us, this is the information. We're starting from here. If you're not on board at this point, fuck you. It's like yeah. it is the laziest way that you could possibly present this information for these characters. Yeah. And in a way as well, sorry, I've got to say, when we do actually meet the character of um and I want to speak to you, Aiden, about this character, but the Tom Cruise character, Nick. Oh God. when we meet him, he's already on a journey that we should have been on board with him from the start. Like, 
all the characters have met each other and started their own little conflicts and stuff like that. Like his relationship with Jenny began like days before now when they <laughs> slept together and fallen out and he stole something yeah. from it. And I was, I was talking to my wife last night. I was like, why haven't we seen this information? Why haven't we, the audience, been able to enjoy this adventure that they've been on together? Why suddenly when they meet, it sounds like they're already halfway through a film we've not been able to see. Yeah, it's just it's a lot of people shouting at that point. Yeah. Like their arc has already firmly and their relationship together has already firmly begun. Yeah. And I use this very lightly, but Alex Kurtzman is a writer. Yeah. <laughs> Surely he knows that from the audience perspective that when characters meet and they're on a journey together, we need to be privy to that. Yeah. It's one thing to have them have a pre existing relationship that predates the film, but it's another thing to have them have just met the day before and things that are key to their relationship having happened in those scenes that we didn't see it's, it's like we've lost the first half of the first act yes exactly yeah yeah for all we know i mean well probably not and maybe i'm giving too much credit to the filmmakers but it seems like those things were potentially filmed and cut for length perhaps it, feel, it feels like it's a very obvious thing to have one scene in a hotel room explain and give a greater depth to their relationship mm-hmm. yeah one scene I think it was in a script at some point. It was definitely in a script. But I think once they introduced the Jekyll and Hyde element of the film and this whole, I think they called, are they called Prodigium or something like that? Yeah, Prodigium. Or Prodigium, something. yeah. That that whole like, um, mm. the, uh, I don't the know. company Sh- thing. Shield. The... Shield. Yeah, <laughs> it's Shield. <laughs> that whole Shield for monsters. Yeah. I think yeah. when they introduced that, they realized, oh, well, this is going to take up half an hour of the script. So we're going to have to take sacrifices elsewhere throughout this entire script. Yeah, and so they've kind of just picked at it until it's just the bare bones, but it doesn't work anymore. Mm. Uh, but I want to speak to you, Aiden. You're a gamer, much like I was at one time, pre-children, and you've played the Uncharted games, much like I have. Did you get a real Uncharted vibe? Like they were really trying hard to cash in on the Uncharted series with like the first twenty minutes of this film, first twenty-five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. I've got it written down in, in my notes as well. Yeah, it's like they've they've tried to use. Tom Cruise's natural charisma yeah. to be a Nathan Drake-esque character yeah. just because of how the story's told and because of the tone misplacement, it's just not worked. And there's a lot of questionable and a lot of stupid decisions made by the characters. Like, for example, with Nathan Drake, it's usually him, Sully. Maybe it's just, yeah, I think a lot of the time it's just two of them and they're going to places they shouldn't go and so on. Yeah. In here, there's, there's a whole army with them, yet... When they first go into the tomb, there's just just the three of them: three Tom of, Cruise, yeah. um, the girl, and and the and the dude from New Girl, Jake Johnson. Yeah, just three of them go into this tomb, and the army just completely don't help. Just leave them alone. Just like these inconsistencies are something that really separate it from the Uncharted series. That and bad writing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even like the Annabelle Wallace character Jenny, like she feels like she fits the female character role from the Uncharted games as well. Like. And I think also, this is me probably looking into it a bit too much, but also having the main character called Nick rather than Nate. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, what, what's with his name? Is... Yeah, because they changed that character name, didn't they? Yeah. He had a completely different name. And his name's his name's Nick Morton. Mm. It's not exactly Indiana Jones, is it? It's like, <laughs> hi, I'm Nick Morton. I'm here to do your insurance today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling from Anglian Home Improvements. This is Nick Morton. Have you ever had a repair at home? <laughs> Actually, talking about um, Jenny. Jono. <laughs> Andy, you pointed this out. I don't know if you wrote it down, but you certainly said it to me I hope he uh, used when we fingers. watched the film. <laughs> <laughs> Straight in, no lube. 
<laughs> it just shows how poor the script and direction is because in this, she is bad. She is not good. In Peaky Blinders, she's great. Yeah. I think, anyway. And um, the times when she has to do those cutaway shots of, like, screaming or disgust when bugs are on her and, and things like that, or when she's shouting Nick, it's so bad. <laughs> that is, like, 90% of her dialogue is shouting Nick. Shit, wait, there's a bit. Where is it? Oh, I just found out the, the original character name of that Nick Morton character. Oh, what was he called? Tyler Colt. Tyler Colt? Yeah. Okay. Wait, say it again. Tyler Colt. Colt, like... Cult, as in like, a, is, it like is that a gun or something? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, cult. Yeah, Tyler Cult. I mean, it's probably slightly more Indiana Jonesy than Nick Morton. It's, it's certainly more Indiana Jonesy than yeah. Nick Morton. Yeah, I'm Tyler <laughs> Cult. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the real estate company that I uh, bought my house from <laughs> <laughs> had somebody called Nick Morton at work. Yeah. Here's Jenny's best quote in the whole film. It's when they're in the forest and the mummies, uh, what's she called? An- Anumet? Amanet. Amanet. <laughs> And I think she kicks him and he goes flying and then she's walking over to him and Jenny goes, get her, Nick, get her, get her, kick her ass, Kick her ass, <laughs> Kick her ass, Nick. <laughs> that is the most Mummy Returns kid line that she has yeah. in that film as well. <laughs> kick her ass. That is some top tier dialogue. Can right you there. imagine reading that in the script? <laughs> kick her ass, exclamation mark. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I, I will say, I've seen her in Peaky Blinders. I liked her in Peaky Blinders, but in this, she is dreadful. Yeah. To be honest, I think everyone's dreadful in this film. Like, Yes. I, I, don't I mean, think... I like Jake Johnson as well, and he's not very yeah. good in this. No. He should have had a t-shirt that said Comic Relief on it or something. Like, you know, actually have a, a Comic Relief, you know, charity t-shirt. Yeah. And then it could have just <laughs> been like, just a little in reference there. There's a bit where they slide on top of a building, and I've written down, Comedy McDuo, and in quotes... <laughs> This is not what we always do. <sighs> yeah, it's just bad. Yeah, his his whole stick is just shouting for a while and then it's just standing about being dead and being funny about it, which yeah. is just entirely ripped off. Do I need to say it? But it's entirely ripped off from an American werewolf in London. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's just playing Griffin Dunn. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's yeah. quite unforgivable in terms of the rip-off. Like, yeah. I will say, in terms of it riffing on Life Force, that's actually to its benefit, I would say. Yeah. But in terms of the American Werewolf stuff, that's just, like, wholesale ripped out of that Yeah, that, that's, that go, it, it goes from being, like, Life Force, it feels more like homage. I think yeah. I heard, yeah, apparently it's very reminiscent of the team as well, this film. But, and, like, that's kind of homage stuff. But, yeah, the, the American Werewolf in London thing is just wholesale ripoff. Yeah. But not done anywhere near as well. I imagine his... I imagine his biggest bit of feedback after takes is like, you know, cut, director walks over and goes, okay, Jake, can we try again? But can you go an octave higher this time? (laughs) And we're just going to see how that plays out. We need to hear you over the missile. (laughs) Yeah, and smoke 20 cigarettes quickly. And then with that added octave, I I think we'll be golden, mate. I feel like everybody that surrounds Tom Cruise in this film is just shouting all the time. Yeah. But Tom Cruise has nothing to say at any point. There's no character arc there for him. I don't know what his character... I don't know who his character is, what his character is, or what his arc is in the film. I don't know what he learns or anything like that. But his reaction to everything that happens is silence and mumbling or murmuring. And every now and again, he'll shout a word (laughs) or two. But most of the time, he's just standing around going, I don't know. Hmm? Yeah. (laughs) There's a whole whole dialogue scene where, where he has with... Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde, whichever terrible accent Russell Crowe was doing at the time, where 
that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Where that's literally, that's literally all he says throughout that entire dialogue. And I feel like that's part of the problem is that the whole film is just exposition and his character is just there to listen to it. Yeah, it's because of what they're trying to set him up to be and he's, yeah. just, he's just there because he's Tom Cruise, I think, really. Yes. There's a funny bit on the plane where I've got some dialogue, some dialogue uh, things that stuck in my head. There's a bit where one of the soldiers... I was going to say, sorry, is this dialogue that you've written for the film? So <laughs> no. to like replace it. I've done a punch-up on a script and I just want to <laughs> run it by you guys. <laughs> no, I just remember, just remember for some reason two, two bits. There's a bit where I think one of the soldiers, somebody asks what's in the tomb and he goes, it's a chick in a box. <laughs> And then we were just, I think I was just thinking about like a KFC bucket or something. Know. Like <laughs> um, the bargain bucket. And then there's another bit where I'm just dotted throughout, especially, well, when they're in London. I think there's someone who goes, get out of the sorry bathroom. And then there's another person who goes, <laughs> goes, wanker. And there's another one, another soldier who goes, fuck you know. Or maybe that's Hyde, actually, I'm not sure. Uh, Hyde is just like, knees up, knees up. <laughs> uh, up. Oh. <laughs> like the, the thing is, right, Australian's not too far away from English. Like, in terms of the accents, like, if you're an actor and you're Australian, <laughs> English isn't too far away from no. that. And yet, Russell Crowe makes it so difficult. Like, it makes it sound like it's it's fathoms away. I mean, not to sound bad, but, you know, historically, Australian accent is Cockney villain. Yes, <laughs> it, it absolutely <laughs> That's is. That's why it sounds like the way it does. It very quickly becomes Cockney versus Cruise in that, yeah. <laughs> during that bit. How, how, I, sorry. I, I think, I think this is going to answer the question you were about to ask. <laughs> and my answer to it is, he's not monster enough when he's... Yes. Monster, yeah. monster. That, that is, I was going to say, how how on earth have they decided to do this uh, Mr. Hyde character that is both just completely underplayed and that he's just, like, how have they still made it not look real, <laughs> even though it's with the most minimal effort whatsoever? <laughs> like, all they've succeeded in just making Russell Crowe not look real. Mr. Hyde, more like Mr. Snide. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Yeah, and after watching this film, I missed a cry because I'm I'm never getting those minutes back. And then I watched yeah. it again. I, I think one of the first things um, when he started to transform and he didn't, and you know, he was withheld his um, injection. Yeah. His like very steampunk style injection. Yeah, just constantly into the same hand. I was like, my brother takes insulin every day and he does it in different parts of his body. Don't keep injecting it into your fucking knuckles, you dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, in, right in between the loose knuckle, right there. But Andy Andy and I, we looked at each other and we were like, he's... Then he's... our eyes met, our lips followed. <laughs> I can't see. <laughs> <laughs> and after we'd made out, then we decided... <laughs> There was nothing else to do. No, but we, honestly, we, we were like, he's not monster enough. He's, he's not transformed enough. He's not no. threatening enough. He's not no. building up to this transformation with that character, yeah. that famous character. When he transforms, it's got to be a fucking transformation and you've got to be, he's got to be a physical terror. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And instead he was just fucking Cockney McGee yeah. and just tossed it up with added strength. And it's Russell Crowe not looking his best. And I say this as a portly gentleman anyway, but he's not exactly the most formidable looking fella. You could probably just outrun him in the, in the room, just run circles. <laughs> and he'd, he'd, he'd just start huffing and puffing. <laughs> like, he'll pull out another injection with just an inhaler in the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Father to a murdered wife, hungry for a bacon whopper. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
I gotta say though, it's, I mean, we've really bagged on this film straight from the beginning. But is there anything that we liked about this film? Don't all start at once. I liked it when it was over. <laughs> I thought the plane scene when it's crashing, it played out a little bit like the first, like like a recorded rehearsal of the Inception hallway scene, like you yes. know when they were just testing the, to see if it would work. Yeah. But never got around to film. Wait, actually, this is a negative thing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. They actually did that for real, though, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a real plane in freefall. Yeah, it's a zero G. It's a Tom Cruise stunt. It's yeah. the Tom Cruise stunt in the film. When they released the first trailer for this film, and once they had eventually put all the audio together for it, I remember like the first instinct I had was, well, this is a Mission Impossible movie with a mummy in it. Yeah. This is not a mummy film. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been the issue all the way up until seeing the film and watching it. I was like, yep, this is just... They've tried to make Mission Impossible with a mummy. Actually, I've got Tom Cruise trying to outrun a sandstorm again. Exactly, yeah. It's like, we saw that in Ghost Protocol. Same shot. Only this sandstorm has a face. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same shot with him. He likes to run towards camera with you not with yes. with the audience seeing what's behind him and him doing it I mean hats off to him on that like there's a lot of running in films which isn't real running but he they're obviously driving fast yeah. and he is he's saying I'm going to sprint you keep up with me and I'll sprint as fast as I can for my age and hats off to him but it's the same shot every time yep it's not, it's not dynamic there's one shot that I really like of Tom Cruise running and this is not in this film but Mission Impossible 3 at the very end of the film, he takes a phone call from Philip Seymour Hoffman's character that's just about to kill his wife, and he bursts off running down a dock, and it's this crane shot that, oh, well, I suppose it's like a helicopter shot. It starts over his head, and then it moves onto the side, like down a canal, as mm, he's running yeah, yeah, like, yeah. in profile then, and then swishes back around while he gets to his destination. It's like, that's a shot. All in one go, it gives you everything. It's like it is, It's dynamic as well. But other Tom Cruise films, it's just mostly just like you say, that, that same shot of that low camera angle looking up of him running towards the camera. Yep. And to be honest, I'm beginning to think it's just CGI. Like he did that in front of a green screen and they're just like plopping it into every film. <laughs> it's like that um, Superman quest for peace flying shot. and it's like a bit like Garth Marenghi as well, where like if a Tom Cruise film is coming in, a, you know, under time. They just uh, they throw in a couple of running shots. Yeah. They've got this um tre- this Tom Cruise treadmill now. It only has one setting, Tom Cruise, <laughs> and he just uh, he's even nicknamed. He's like, okay, guys, let's break out Betty and get it down in front of the green screen studio stage, and just he just goes for it. And it's, it's it's perfectly in tune with his max speed. I think all fucking treadmills should come with a Tom Cruise sound. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> you press it, and just a green screen just just goes behind you. <laughs> Set your lifestyle to Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> you can just be out of any of his films, any of his films when he's running. And maybe they throw in Forrest Gump shot as well. <laughs> <laughs> I do have something genuinely uh, positive that I want to say about this film. Ooh. I think it has two things that work for it. One is that the production design is actually quite nice at times. It's not incredible, but there are some real sets there without green screen being used that are lit rather well. And the other thing that I want to say is that there's one scene in this film where everything works for me. And that is the scene where the two coppers come across the body of yes. the the mummy for the first time. And that is the only scene where it's genuine horror. And that is the best scene that works in the film. And it's mostly, again, I love Life Force. It takes a lot from Life Force in that scene as well. But that is the one where it all works for me. 
There's a little bit too much CGI on the mummy's face, but when you see it in a wide shot and it's clearly an actor that's that's been augmented with um, you know a little bit of CGI here and there to make his limbs a bit thinner, that's when it really works. I thought, yeah, that that looks great. Mm. Uh, but that's my that's my favourite scene in the film. That's the only scene that where the whole thing for me worked. And if the whole film had been that, it would have been much more enjoyable for me. I actually think my favourite character, and I think the best performance, was actually a Sophia um, Amina. I thought she was generally okay. She was certainly better than everyone else. <laughs> mm. I thought she was fine. In another film, maybe it would have worked. It's mostly just that there's nothing interesting about that character, the the mummy character. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing really dynamic about the way in which they present her history because of the way in which it's just laid out to yeah. us. According to that Variety article that was written about this, that her part is a, a casualty of the Tom Cruiseanization of the film. Her part was like just very much downplayed. Yeah, it was supposed to be like equal to yeah. the Nick character. They were supposed to be like 50-50, and then when Tom Cruise came on board, they were like, well... Tom Cruise wants to make it a Tom Cruise movie, so we've got to we've got to do this. And they, it reminds me very much of what happened with Terminator Salvation, where Christine Bale came onto that film for a role that was originally supposed to be very peripheral, quite marginal, and then be elaborated on in sequels. But because they got Christian Bale for the John Connor role, they were like, well, let's make the most of Christian Bale. So they made him like an equal figure to the main character. It seems like that's what's happened here. I don't think this would have worked. I don't think The Mummy would have worked with the people that they had brought on board to make that film. Anytime you see a film that has so many writers behind the scenes, you know that something's happened. They've not been able to settle on a vision for this film and they're just going through people until they have some semblance of a shooting script that you know appeases all of the thousand executive producers that are involved. But I, I think, yeah, Alex Kurtzman's not the right person to make this film, but every now and again you just see a glimmer of what it could be and yeah one thing I, I do want to say the mummy films i don't like that they're always in a rush even the stephen sommers films are always in a rush once the mummy has been introduced to get to him being a human figure again but i i would love a mummy film to come out that really embraces the monstrousness of that character that really spends like i want to see more time spent with it as that creature that lurks beneath the docks i feel like we get past that so quickly I mean, to be honest, I think we just need a mummy film that's not PG-13. We just need yeah. a... I mean, hopefully, this new line of Blumhouse films that they've started making that's sort of the uh, successor to the Dark Universe. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure there might even be a mummy one in planning stages at some point. I mean, much, much later on the line, but I'm pretty sure it's on there. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Because that, that's what they need to do. They just need to... I mean, they've started doing that, you know, rather successfully straight away. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, making them proper horror films again, because we've yeah. had so many decades now of them trying to make these universal horror monsters family-friendly, and it's just always been the complete wrong way to go about it. And I think that was the thing that doomed this version of the film from the start, is that people had already cottoned onto the fact that this kind of thing doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Uh, and they were just flogging a dead horse. Yeah. Horror and action. It's not the best combo. No. <laughs> and I will say as well, this type of horror film, although I do think that, that you know, there are issues with the mummy character that, as, as mentioned, I would like to spend more time with it as a monster. But it represents a type of horror film that I really like. And I always like horror films that have some sort of... I would say, archaeological element to them, about some sense of discovery, 
about something old and ancient and evil. And the idea of the characters themselves are discovering something. It's, it, there's an element of it in The Exorcist as well that I really appreciate. The whole idea that Pazuzu, it isn't just a demon that came into existence a few days before, but they set it up as an ancient evil that has always been there, that predates all of the characters involved in this, and probably, you know, humanity in general as well. And it, it gives it as well some historical basis in that when we first see Father Merrin, he's out in the desert uncovering a statue, a monument, dedicated to Pazuzu and I'm like I love all that give me more of that this sense of ancient evil and the mummy should definitely play into that it should really play into that horror element and I will say even the Stephen Sommers film has a little bit of that that really works for it as well like give it more of that give it more of that sense of unknowable ancient dread and uh yeah I, I think it really whiffs the lines on this one and what is it with the tomb? What is it with the mummy's tomb in this film? Like, it's held down by... Have you, has anybody ever seen a pulley system like that? Where, with elevated rocks that are supposed to hold it down, but the moment that one of the lines is severed, it lifts it up. <laughs> like, that is a really dreadful way to hold something in place. I, I think I wrote down around that point is that everything escalates very quickly. Yeah. I mean, Tom Cruise's fate was sealed the minute he gets in that tomb and she sort of telepathically speaks to him. Right. Yeah. He was doomed, really, to to become the character that he that they tried to set him up to be. Yeah. But I would have liked if he wasn't this focus point for her, and at the end he makes the decision to have an eternity of darkness struggle himself to save humanity or to save any one particular character. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So all the way along, you know. Well, then again, actually, maybe that wouldn't work because why would she be then focused on on him and trying to get, you know, they had to give the mummy a reason to to pursue him, didn't they? I mean, it would have worked if she'd pursued another character. Then we do what you said, and then he actually decides to switch places with that character and actually sacrifice himself. Then you have an art to save other character, yeah. Yourself, yeah. a very selfish character, and then by the end of it, we have, you know, yeah. it's, it's like it's like a tried and tested character arc. You have a selfish character, and then he makes the ultimate sacrifice, the yeah, ultimate yeah. act of unselfishness. Yeah, so it should have it should have targeted Jenny. Jenny, or, yeah, perfect. You know, it wouldn't have been great, but it would have <laughs> there would have been something there. Yeah, exactly. It would have it would have at least hit the marks that you expect of this film, rather than yeah. you know, not trying at all. <laughs> <laughs> like I have issues with like like again go, going back to the beginning of this film like 90% of the characters that were introduced to in the first 20 minutes are dead by minute 21 <laughs> yeah, you know why have like the likes of Courtney B. Vance and yeah. Jake Johnson in this film if you're just gonna fridge them in the first yeah. 21 minutes I don't know if fridge is the right term you're just gonna body them yeah. I'm, what I'm trying to say is kill them <laughs> yeah I mean, it's a testament to how like poorly written this film is that there's not even that many characters in this film, like credited actors, and even then, they're not able to flesh them out in any positive way. Yeah. The, the cast list is very short on this film. Oh, don't forget, there's the Colonel guy, Colonel Greenway. That's it, yeah, Courtney B. Vance. I've only got one note about him, actually, and the note is... Sexual. No. <laughs> Sarge, <laughs> Sarge is a dish. <laughs> Sarge is a Jawa? I don't know why I've written that. <laughs> what? He certainly doesn't sound like one. <laughs> You'd say <it> like, Houdini! <laughs> yeah, that, that was the line that gave it away for me. <laughs> the one thing I wanted to mention in that whole sequence, like, I don't understand why there's only, like, a very short Middle Eastern part of this film anyway. Yeah. But it seems to insinuate that airstrikes are good. Yes, it does. Saved in the nick of time by the airstrike. Yeah. It's, it's like drone bombings. Yeah. Thank Yay. God. <laughs> How do we get out of this one, Tom? 
Just fucking kill oh, everyone. <laughs> yeah, murder from above. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really make you want to like these characters, does it? Like, oh, God, there's a big thing we've not spoke about, which is a just a fucking... Oh, it's just donkey shit. <laughs> I remember that scene. There's a bit where he... Where, um, uh, what's he called? Tom Cruise's comedy... What's, What's his, his fucking name? name? I know it's Jake Johnson. Yeah, I can't remember um, the name of his character. Chris. Sergeant Vale. Chris Vale, that's what? it. Yeah, it's uh, Vale. Oh, it is Vale. It's anyway. Chris Vale. Right, fair enough. I believe you. Lifting the veil on his character. Let's go into this. Mm-hmm. There's a bit where he's starting to get sick, and fuck me, do they think the audience is stupid because the amount of times <laughs> he's going, uh, 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 cough, 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 getting ill. But, it, but it's in four, I think it's in, yeah, it's in four scenes, across four scenes. Yeah. Yeah, and and there's a close-up of him coughing every time, and then eventually, obviously, he turns into this zombie that only Tom Cruise can see. And there's the mirror scene in the bathroom with the with the women at the yep. you know the, get out of the sodium bathroom that bit. Nailed it, mate. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> oh god, it's just so poor, man. I mean, it's just not. I like him as an actor. Yeah, just it just did not fit. It just was so weird for me. Well, like, Jake Johnson's fine. He, like I say, I, I like him in other things. He's actually quite funny. And he's got good comic timing yeah. in, in other things that I've seen. Yeah, I agree. I've not seen loads of The New Girl, but I've seen enough to know that he's a good comedy actor and he, he certainly hits the mark and knows how to hit the mark. But in this, all of his dialogue is like, he's so stiff and stood still. There's no blocking. There's no interesting movement that he has to do between the scenes. He's Every time he's introduced, he just has to stand really still and just deliver information to Tom Cruise's character. And that's it. And it's like, of course, it's not going to be good. It's everything that an actor doesn't want. Or I suppose, you know, it's an easy pay job at least because all you get to do is just stand there. Mm. I think that seems to be more of a technical thing because it seems like they've not bothered to make do any makeup on him at the time and then they've just decided, oh, we'll just put CGI on him later. But don't move too much because we've not tracked this. So it feels like an Alex Kurtzman boo-boo where he's not thought about how to actually achieve the scene. Therefore, it's imposed several restrictions on what they can actually do. Yeah. can't. Obviously, they've not made him up. Uh, but then, yeah, they, he can't move too much because they've not, they'll have to rotoscope it afterwards. And it's like, you know, they've not thought it through. Mm. But I mean, that's the whole fucking film. But yeah. It's like... And the, the aesthetic to show. So how do we make this guy look like he's been possessed by Aminette? Oh, let's just make him look a bit gaunt. Make him look a bit white and dead. Yeah. And let's make one of his eyes white. And that's it. It's like in American Werewolf, like you say, every time you see him, he's like decomposing. His skin is just stripping away until he's, he's just a skeleton. Yeah. And it's like, that's so much more interesting and funny as well. Yeah. Like in American Werewolf, I like how that whole thing is played for the morbid laughs as well, because he's still being rather kind of nonchalant and flippant about the fact that he's visibly decomposing rather quickly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love all that. That's great stuff in that film. Yeah. And it doesn't work in this whatsoever, even though they've just ripped it off wholesale. Weren't you saying there was no continuity to which I they'd done as well? Like, there was some, like, oh, yeah. continuity issues. There's a bit I've got wrong eye white and accidental shot. My grammar's not the best there. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a bit where somebody gets shot, and I think their right eye is white, and the continuity just screws up the minute they turn around, and suddenly it's the left eye. It's, actually, it's in the plane. It's in the plane scene, I think. Yeah, it's when he um, turns over, isn't it? And then suddenly, when he stands up, it's the other eye. Yes. That, yeah. 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 <laughs> they've done the wrong fucking eye. Uh, they mu- it must be a flipped <laughs> shot. It must be a. Fl- yeah. They filmed it on the op- opposite side of the set, and they've just been. F- they had no choice. Yeah, I think I think it's something that they haven't. <laughs> they realised it hasn't worked in post. Yeah. And just hoped that nobody would notice. Yeah. What we did. 
Oh, that was a bit creepy, huh? <laughs> but, but we did. <laughs> yeah. The, the other big question I had is... Um, why am I here? Why is Tom Cruise <laughs> intact when he's on the uh, slab? Like, why, why oh, would God, he be yeah. attacked, like, completely? Right, because he's got script armor on. Yeah. Which I, I completely <laughs> understand. He's wearing script armor. That's fine. His character, script armor, that's great. Completely understand. You can say, well, he's got some mystical connection to the mummy. Yeah. So Cursed. That's yeah. what you blah, 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 blah. But why is he surrounded by, like, all fully other, intact all the dead bodies? bodies? <laughs> Just like they just got people to lie on the floor. Exactly. Like on the on the slabs. It doesn't make sense. And the thing is as well, even in a PG-13, it's all covered up. You could still at least allude to the fact that there's parts of bodies there not yeah, fully intact. There's no blood at all. Yeah, it's just so <laughs> clinical. It's like, for me personally, I would say that the desire to make this into a Tom Cruise joint, and you've already touched upon it with the Variety article. There is one that was released afterwards that says uh, there were troubles with this film in that Tom Cruise had excessive control over yeah. the making of this film. And a lot of insiders have come forward to say that Alex Kurtzman's inexperience making this film has kind of resulted in Tom Cruise essentially taking up the reins as director a lot of the time like he made a lot of the key decisions I mean not just like producer decisions such as who is hired for what role and that type of thing but in the editing suite as well it seems like the film was cut under his guidance yeah. not Alex Kurtzman's yeah. and there's, there's a piece of information that I, I remember reading from Christopher McQuarrie who's a credited writer on this film now, this is a film that he was brought on board just to do a script doctor and gone to see if he could help save the film. And he's very much upfront about the fact that what he did didn't work for this film. It was already too far along. He said he was brought on in a similar capacity for Edge of Tomorrow. It works for that film. It didn't work for The Mummy. These things happen. But I read in an interview where he's talking, and he doesn't name the film, but everything about it leads me to believe it's about his experience working on this film. As he came on board... And he took the director to the side. He said, and we were dealing with a very inexperienced director for a very high budget movie, which instantly makes me think this yeah, is the mummy. This one, isn't it? Yeah. And he says, I took him aside and I said, here are the things that you're going to have to do to protect your place as a director. He says, I've been in your position and this is what you have to do. There are certain things you're going to have to write into this film to make sure that you're protected and you get the coverage that you as a director, not anybody else that you need and he said that the director said, no, I want to do things another way. And he said, I was then brought on in post to write some bits of dialogue. And that director was just a husk of a person. And he said, and all of the things that I had asked him to protect himself against, he had given into. He had compromised everything along the way. And I feel like this is the film that he's talking about, that his experience on The Mummy is where that has come down. But yeah, I've, I've <laughs> sorry, that was a, got very serious for a second there. Yeah. Very interesting, though. It is. It is. I, I think it's a weird film to have Christopher McQuarrie's name on, but at the same time, just given that it is Mission Impossible with a mummy, then, yeah, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. This film has so many disadvantages as well, because one, yeah, it's a it's a, a PG-13 mummy film yeah, dominated by Tom Cruise, and that in itself is shit anyway. But then it's further lumbered with having to set up all this dark universe bollocks as well, which we could probably go on to now because we've not really talked enough about the prodigium and the, the room of future oh, sequels. Oh, no, we haven't. Like, Yeah, th let's let's get into prodigium. Yeah. I, do, let's th this, take the reins on prodigium, my friend. I just remember that what, there's a certain bit in that whole sequence where they go into a room and it is the room of future sequels. Like, 
they obviously think they're being really clever by um, yeah. having little tidbits of, uh, like, I think there's, like, the creature from the Black Lagoon's hand in there. Yeah, And there's a it. vampire skeleton and whatever else. Don't forget in things there. in jars. <laughs> yeah, lots of things in jars. <laughs> yeah. Dicks in jars. Je- Jeff Goldblum's dick somewhere <laughs> yeah, in there. It's got to be. <laughs> it's it's got to be. It's got to be. Or it's got to fly. It, it's, it, yeah. <laughs> but it literally is welcome to the room of future sequels. Welcome to this franchise. Here's yeah. what you could see in the future. <laughs> <laughs> but no. <laughs> I wrote in my notes, monsters assemble. Like, <laughs> just that part of the film is so fucking on the nose as to what it's trying to achieve. Yeah. The other thing as well, I was thinking, doesn't this film feel ridiculously dated as well for the time that it was made? It does remind me, because I, I was watching it the, the other week as well, because there's like, yeah, there's like a, a S.H.I.E.L.D. vibe, but it also reminds me very much of LXG and Van Helsing. Yeah. In the way that it tries to set up the organisation, because you know in Van Helsing they kind of have a James Bond vibe, you know, yeah. with that David Wenham character being sort of mm-hmm. the Q, and they have an M, and the same thing it goes with LXG as well, but more so in in Van Helsing, which is also ironic that it's a Stephen Summers film. It's like they didn't even really try to sort of distance themselves from the previous sort of style. No, especially with the Prodigium stuff. It's got notes of Hellboy as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the one I was going to yeah. mention. I, I was going to say, the thing is that they should aspire to be more like. I think of the personality that Hellboy has when it comes to setting up the secret society that they have in place there for these monsters. That has a lot of character. The B, the BPR, uh, the BRPD or BPRD, I forgot what they're called. That organization's got a lot of character. In this film, Pre- Prestigium or whatever it's called is nothing. It's just yeah. grey. It's dead. It has nothing for me. <laughs> there was um there was a scene in um Days of Future Past or one of the one of the um X Men films where um they see Wolverine at a bar and they go and they're trying to recruit <laughs> him and he just he just looks at them and goes Days of Future Past. Yeah. He just looks at them and goes, Fuck off. Yeah. Well that's first class, isn't it? Oh, it's first class. Yeah, you're right, yeah. First class, yeah. In this I would have liked something instead of like a vampire skull, like you said, Andy, you know, with the <laughs> with the long teeth, right really up front in, in like a panning shot. If yeah. there was just a bit where he's walking around and you had this like poof and like a, a vampire appears and he looks at him and he goes, tells him to fuck off or not not the same thing, but he just says some kind of line and walks off as if he's really not interested in Tom Cruise's character and what's happening here. <laughs> like like they introduced Spider-Man early outside of his own film. They could have oh, yeah, yeah. potentially done something similar there other than Jekyll Hyde, you know. But that's something that comes in later. You just you work on making the film good first, and then like in later <laughs> installments, that's when you start like True. introducing those little elements like that. And I think I think those kind of things can work once you've done the hard work, once you've done the legwork of not setting up a universe that works, but setting up a film that works and people want to see more of. Because that's how Iron Man works. It's not that it made me want to see the Avengers. I already wanted to see the Avengers because we hadn't ever seen anything like that. But it made me care about Iron Man and wanted me to see more of Tony Stark. This, who the fuck's Nick Morton? I don't care. Um, I don't care about Prestigium or anything like that either. Yeah, I think I think that's where it fell apart. It just it forgot that the thing that people are going to come back for is the character. And because this film has no character, there's nothing for anybody to come back to. I mean, the whole, like, play on the, you know, the mummy. The mummy is the friends that we made along the way. It's actually fucking Tom Cruise. <laughs> it is our The Mummy. I think Van Helsing is very much in line with, with what this film feels like in the era of filmmaking. It, 
it feels like it embodies. But yeah, how did you not learn from the mistakes of that film as well? Because I will say, The Mummy, it's not that it shouldn't, it isn't like prime for an open universe, an open monster movie universe. They've been doing it since like the 1930s or 40s or something with these films anyway. Or is it 20s? But anyway, they've been doing it for, for donkey's years with these films, like crossing over, you know, and with Abbott and Costello and stuff yeah. like that as well. So it's not like these series, these monster movies are above having some sort of cinematic universe. It can certainly work. Just got to put in the legwork first. And that's what a lot of these cinematic universe movies, these, I've called it the most expensive pilot season <laughs> ever, because that's, that's what it is. It's like you yeah. get all of these films that are like, this is the first of a seven film series that we're planning on. Like King Arthur is another one that comes to mind. The amazing Spider-Man films. And it all just falls apart because they forget the main thing that has to work first is that it has to work on its own first before it works with something else. Yeah. Did any of you see Amazing Spider-Man 2 as well? Because that's like the film that Alex Kurtzman did before this. And that's the one that killed the, the, Spider -Man, the Amazing Spider-Man series. Is that the one with Electro? Yes. And the, yes. And the bit where he's in the some steelwork sort of electrical plant and... For some reason, each electrode bar type thing has a different note resonance. Yeah. Yeah. So he starts playing Itsy Bitsy Spider on them when Spider Man. <laughs> oh, wow. Yep. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> I went to go see Hans Zimmer live as well. And it was like this amazing concert. And then he, he, he dedicated this whole like 20 minute section to his score to The Amazing Spider Man 2. And it was the most obnoxiously loud bullshit <laughs> anybody ever heard before it was just all digital manipulation and you could see everybody's heads just like slowly go down and it wasn't good it was like <laughs> it, it kind of killed the vibe yeah yeah i will say as well just as a as a note one more note i have about this film because we just mentioned it as well that it actually ends with tom cruise becoming the titular mummy that's what it's a reference to it's actually tom cruise is the mummy and i've wrote that this film ends like all of tom cruise's marriages with him visibly sucking the life out of a woman who looks half his age <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually i thought it was a clever idea to sort of move the supernatural powers onto a big star and then he is then that character somehow going forward in the dark mm -hmm. universe, right? I thought that, that idea, the concept was fine. I'm fine with that. Yeah, 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 that's fine. But yeah. then I'm starting to think how, I mean, I guess, I guess the question's answered with how they handle Thor as a god in, you mm -hmm. know, and then Iron Man's a man in a suit, you know, how they kind of power balance them to a degree. But he's yeah. not a mummy, is he? He's, he is, Tom Cruise is now the embodiment set, of Set, set. the yeah. god. The god of death. Yeah, he is a death god. Yeah. Or at least he has that power within him, but for some reason he can hold it back. He can hold it at bay when the darkness mm -hmm. comes for him. He can. <laughs> he's a mortal man who has the power of set, but can contain and control the power. Yeah. See, there's too many inconsistencies that sort of arise. I mean, maybe they would be resolved or looked into or further developed with further films, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking as well that uh, that last scene with him and Jenny in the sewer. I just wrote, "I have become silhouette man." Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. I don't know why they try and like what's going on with his face. Like they don't yeah. really. A moment ago, his face was fine. It's like they were gonna tell you, but they forgot to do it later. Like because you never see his face again. Like after that point. Yeah. It's like there's some big reveal coming. But I don't know. I think the other thing I wrote just before then, in terms of that whole bit. 
like the climax, I didn't know what the rules were in terms of no. how things got transferred and mm-hmm. and how he got possessed, but then didn't, and he still had self control. I, I don't. It didn't work. <laughs> she also, as the mummy, she had the ability to bring people back from, like, bring corpses to life that she hadn't actually touched at all or anything like that. I mean, not in a Jimmy Savile way, but, like, <laughs> she had the ability, like, the Templars, for example, or came out of the, the tombs. She had no interaction yeah. with them previously at all. No. Like, previously, it's just set up that the people that she sucks the life force from become, like, almost like mummy vampires in a way. They're like her little followers, they're little, her minions. But then anybody that's dead, any corpse that's lying around that she's just come across, is like, oh, yeah, fuck it, you'll be a mummy as well. There you go. Yeah. That, 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 <laughs> yeah, that's said with such confidence. Yeah, I, I felt like I, I missed something there, like... uh in terms of the rules that are set up for this this uh, creature, rules. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the thing is, like some of it felt so John Landis that I thought, oh, any minute now they're all going to break into some sort of Michael Jackson dance routine. Like <laughs> it, it felt like that quite a lot, of t- like a lot of the time. It's got that fo- guy from phone shopping, hasn't it? As well, the the bald fella. Yeah, who's the copper. And he gets like one line, which is shouting the word Alan. Alan, I wrote Alan and in that, my notes. That's it, Alan. <laughs> and that's it. That, that's, that's his line. And then he's just like a, a, a zombie mummy thing. What oh. I want to know is: Is Tom Cruise going to have to stay youthful by sucking the life out of innocent people now, like she does at the beginning? I know that's what he does already. He does that in his spare time, as it is. That's his ex-wife. That's his his life. (laughs) The alien god Xenu will provide. (laughs) Yeah, I I would highly doubt that they'll have got that far, like in the planning stages. I like how the voiceover at the end kind of just goes down a route of, and the darkness will always be there, and he will always have to fight it, but fight it he must. He's not the mummy we need. Yeah, and then, yeah. <laughs> and then he just gallops away, and then um, Nick's character is it Nick? The Vale? No, Chris. Chris. Chris Vale, who's just back from the dead. Yeah, and so Tom Cruise is galloping away, and and Chris is like, is, does he have a horse, or is he just doing it by himself, like well, with coconuts? Is that one of his mummy powers? <laughs> <laughs> He's just got a stick with with a with a horse's head on it. <laughs> <laughs> And Chris is coming behind with some coconuts. Yeah, he's got a hobby horse. (laughs) (laughs) The budget really ran out for this last shot, guys. (laughs) Oh, I forgot my point now. I think he was just doing something along those lines of like... I forgot what his line is. Wait for me. I'm still here. (laughs) I'm not dead. (laughs) But he does genuinely say, come on, my friend. Again, that's a a line in the script. I don't want to come on any of my friends. (laughs) Yeah, but... Like, you know it's a bad piece of writing when they say my friend at the end of it. Oh, like, no. Doesn't he go, this might be bullshit. But doesn't he go, where's your sense of adventure? Oh, he didn't say, yeah, wait, he no, does, he didn't say he it does. like that. But he says that line, right? And, yeah, and he you does. just think... <laughs> Why does he say it like the merchant from Resident <laughs> Evil 4? <he> didn't... <laughs> what are you buying? <laughs> what are you selling? Not enough cash. <laughs> yeah, he, 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 he says that. And if, if, I was, if I was the other character, I'd be like... We've just had fucking enough adventure. You're not even you anymore, yeah. you prick. Give me a fucking breath, guy. <laughs> yeah, let's just... Let's, you try and curb the darkness and let's just go and fucking retire yeah. someone. If anyone gives any Can trouble, I just see my parents? curse them. <laughs> Can I tell my parents I'm alive? <laughs> yeah. 
What's I you? have a child. My wife has been calling me nonstop. <laughs> oh. She has no idea but, that I've only got one eye and no heartbeat. <laughs> but I'm hard 24-7. <laughs> but when they ride off into the sunset, what are they actually riding off into the sunset for? Adventure, Andy. <laughs> yeah, but there's no, there's no like new mission or anything. There's, there's nothing that they're gonna look for. Like they've not set anything up for a sequel. Like they're just going off. Russell Crowe is basically a salesman for the Dark Universe. That's it for his character, other than his w- very odd portrayal of Mister Hyde. But isn't he riding off to find some way to break the curse? Oh, maybe I don't know. I don't think I cared at that point. It's <laughs> <laughs> like because i think as well like especially watching the film in the context that we know it goes nowhere it's very different to watching it in the cinema when there was still a possibility that they still might make more films in this series but now watching i think it makes the 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 prodigium scenes even even more embarrassing even at the time they would have been on the nose and like very patronizing but now the fact that it went nowhere absolutely nowhere and all we're left with is that dark universe logo that photoshop picture and russell crowe hinting at future installments like like this is shield i am nick fury monsters assemble (laughs) at the end of this film like the whole idea that there could be future installments feels more like a threat yeah (laughs) it's like they've got a gun to my family's head like yeah i'll come back okay whatever just don't hurt them oh there's that other character that seemed to just appear and then disappear that was uh played by that guy that plays jafar in aladdin jafar. oh yeah yeah he was called malik I that's think. right yeah his, his character name's malik yeah uh marwan kenzari it felt very much like the um, welcome to marwan it felt very much like world war z he was bad in aladdin and he was bad in this <laughs> he's just yeah. not got the face for it <laughs> his jaw's too square and he looks too young he was in that the old guard as well, wasn't he? And he was, it was, he was actually not too bad in that. Yeah. But, oh, that that's a very Netflix movie. Yeah. But uh, it feels like he's a, a victim of re-editing. Like his part should have been more, yeah. but it wasn't. Very much like is it yeah. Matthew? Um, what's his bloody name in World War Z? Where they we know when they reshot the third act and that character is it Matthew Fox? Yes, and, and he's like in it for a shot yeah, as yeah. a as a pilot. Yeah, and it was it was originally supposed to be the person his wife has to couple up with in yeah, order to yeah. survive or something like yeah. that. Yeah, it feels very much like that where his character should have been in it more and had more significance, and then he's just yeah. in and out of the movie. In a way, it's like he's supposed to be our agent Coulson. Oh. Yeah, very much so. To uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde's mm. Nick Fury. I, I, I will say as well, one more thing that I just want to point out, one more thing is that on a small level, again, just another moment that pisses me off with this film is when, like, we've talked about that ending and the way that it sets up that Chris and Nick are these legendary friends, BFFs. <laughs> and the thing is as well, when Nick kills Chris, there is no reaction whatsoever. They even play it for like a comedy moment where yeah. he shoots him an extra time just for a laugh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's like there's not any sense of weight or emotional like, oh, shit, I've just killed my best friend. Yeah. How am I going to live with this? Yeah. The, the, they treat it more as an oops moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's happened again. Oh, no. Right. <laughs> Me and guns. <laughs> oh, I've done again. I've done it again. <laughs> Oops, I did it again. <laughs> My bad quote from earlier, the one with the bad grammar, it makes total sense now. Wrong <laughs> eye white, an accidental shot, question mark, exclamation mark. Yeah. yeah that, oh, right, yeah. That, that's exactly what I was talking about at the beginning about tone. It was fucking all over the place. Yeah. Like a porno, it was fucking all over the place. Yep. <laughs> so I was going to give an example, but um, I didn't know how dark to go. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, and another thing which plays into the very poor writing, and obviously this film's been rewritten to fuck. We have yet another MacGuffin in this film, like uh, with that diamond thing. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. It's so memorable that we all forgot about it. <laughs> Is it supposed to mean something that in in the end, before he stabs himself with it, he cracks it? Is yeah. that supposed to mean something? Is yeah. that supposed to be like... It was part of the ritual, isn't it? And I, Because I, I, I only noticed that on the last time I watched it, just last night for this show. And I remember that he cracked it before he stabbed himself. And does that mean that he's got more control over himself or something like that? Something like that. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to go with yes. Question mark. Yeah, this is like one of the, the end dot 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 question yeah. mark answers, isn't it? Yeah. That gave them future possibilities. And a reason yeah. for something they haven't come up with yet that they could tie back yeah. to this oh, first film. Oh, that's totally going to be their um, Infinity Stones mother box. Oh, you're right. Totally. It it's is. Like, it's going to yeah, be the mummy's it. dagger. And then it's going to be, well, we're talking about it as if it's going to be a thing, aren't we? It's not going to be a thing. <laughs> the vampire's cape. The invisible man's anus. <laughs> <laughs> Russell Crowe's glove. <laughs> He reminds me, every time I see his hand, it reminds me of that guy from Scary Movie 2 where it's like, I'll help you with my strong hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We haven't, I don't think we've talked about Russell Crowe in this film enough because he is embarrassing. Yeah. It's like he didn't make any effort. He totally should have gone to the gym for a start. Like, I think he's going to the gym for roles days are over. He's, he stopped yeah. caring that much. It's like he's he just, just rolled decided. out of bed, you know, with his yeah. burger wrappers. <laughs> like. He looks like he's having a good time, but he cares less. Yeah. He's still enjoying himself, but he doesn't give a shit. Just that whole like interpretation of Mr. Hyde, the fact that they were intending to make a spin-off film focusing on that character, just how much they balls that character up. And apparently I was reading before, that interpretation, that whole um, going from a posh accent to a Cockney accent is derived from a, a very poor 1970s musical version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's their inspiration. <laughs> like, that's where that yeah. kind of thing's derived from. I mean, it very much reminds me of, you know, when we were talking for the LXG episode, when we were talking about uh, Moriarty. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah. When it was like, uh, you know, Moriarty died then. You know, we had all the multiple <laughs> accents. Sounds like the Hitcher from Mighty Boosh. Yeah. But it does, <laughs> I've got yellow what, rope coming out of me. <laughs> but I think that's what makes the film feel so dated. Like, those kind of things. Like, I don't understand why they were doing those kind of things now. It was weird, actually. As it started to transform, I was thinking, well, they introduced... Spider-Man into the MCU as, as a, and decided not to go down the um, the origin story route. So, yeah. okay, that's what we're doing with this character, but, but Spider-Man's a hero. He is part monster, part villain. Part of the, the beauty of a Jekyll and Hyde film is the build-up to see Hyde for the first time. The first time he transforms, mm. the first time you, you, see, you see him. And this... They've blown their load. <laughs> yeah oh yeah and that is the best way to put it they absolutely yeah. blew their hide load and it just it just <laughs> and it just dribbled out that's that's oh, what yeah. it was like yeah. you know like it was not it was just a disappointment a gloopy mess of disappointment it's just discharge <laughs> oh, oh fuck <laughs> <it> <laughs> i think that's the thing as well like how poorly they treated the character like that because if they were intending this to be like an mcu analog and I think we even talked about it in the LXG episode when we were talking about Jason Fleming's interpretation of um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and how we thought that was actually quite a good interpretation and how it was almost like a, a clear inspiration to uh, the character of the Hulk and Bruce Banner. And when you've got that kind of um, 
expectation to do something new and special with a character like that. Yeah. To just make his face look grey and have him yeah. do that embarrassing Cockney accent and that's your Mr. Hyde. What the fuck were they thinking? Like, this is supposed to be an advert for this film series that you're wanting to promote. And he's the salesman as well. Like, he is the salesman for the series, you know, because he's the Nick Fury type. Mm. Whatever else was going on, it was doomed to be a one film thing, like, from there on in. Like, if that's all they had to offer. Yeah. I mean, the whole film was like, if, that, if that's all they had to offer, yeah, no wonder no one came back and no, like, no one went to see this film. I saw it twice. <laughs> You poor fuck. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, just before we actually begin talking about the stats and facts, you've just mentioned as well, this is a film that has been doomed to failure. And I've mentioned that from the marketing campaign that, you know, this film did set it up as being very Mission Impossible with a mummy. And if anything, I read in the Variety article that Tom Cruise actually, in terms of his excessive control, he was actually very controlling over the marketing of the film. So I ask, why did Tom Cruise only release half of the audio for the first trailer? (laughs) (laughs) Some things, you know, perhaps Tom Cruise shouldn't have this much control in. He did his own sound design. (laughs) (laughs) Did everybody see that trailer? Yeah, the first time I saw it, I genuinely believed it was somebody had stripped the audio and done their own track. I'm not even joking. Like, not, it's not even for the for the lols. Yeah, that was yeah. that was my true feeling about it. I thought, oh, someone mm-hmm. on Reddit is taking that stripped in, put their own yeah. sound effects on, remove the music, and post it as a joke, like a bad lip reading sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Was it an IMAX trailer? It was because they had actually released the full trailer. I think it was like a week before, and then they released the IMAX version of the same trailer with a couple of extra snippets. But they only released it with half of the audio. It wasn't like some sort of like encoding error or something like that. Like I think so. Yeah, yeah. it's like something just had gone wrong in the uploading, <laughs> or the or the uh, just what do you call it? Sorry, the the mixing out of of the uh, the trailer. And that trailer provides a real fascinating look into how like the audio levels and and what different audio layers that they have within yeah. these type of trailers. And when you strip it back, like how some of those audio layers can just really sound as ridiculous as they are yeah. as they do without all of that like further dressing of the music and sound effects and that type of thing. Like hearing Tom Cruise scream the way he did. <laughs> it's, it, oh, it's it's so funny and it still makes it into the final film but not at that point that scream that scream that he does in that trailer it's in the final film but it comes when he's surrounded by the rats <laughs> not when the plane crashes it's like when you have olympic diving and when you see the whole thing in the finished product it's, it's very impressive very very good and they do their whole flips and they land down and they get scored but if you Google something like Olympic diving photos or, or still frames or something, <laughs> and you look at their faces, it's the most fugliest thing you've ever seen. And <laughs> yeah. you think that how can something so, how can a moment in time so fugly create something so stunning and choreographed and beautiful? And it's sort of like this when you, when everything's there together, it works. But... Why do you always talk about Olympic divers? You're always like, <laughs> Every every time we have a conversation, <laughs> isn't it synchronized swimming as well? They have funny photos. Uh, you know, what? I think that's even worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Where like they're looking very angrily yeah. at the feet next yeah. to the face yeah. and stuff like. And it's the same thing here. Like like ADR in a mix works. ADR sometimes on its own sounds like absolute dog shit. I guess yeah. that's testament to very good sound designers that. They know like a bad sound effect will work perfect within a yeah. greater yeah. mix, right? Within a full mix. Yeah. 
Oh, I found another positive thing to say about this film. It's a great lesson in sound design. Yeah. For people. Like, if they, you know, people who don't know how it works, it's a yeah. great thing to look at if you want to know like, how it's all put together. That's <laughs> like, what I mean, yeah. It, it gives a little, like, insight little behind lesson. the scenes. <laughs> I will say as well, like, the best thing that I saw that come out of this was that somebody did, around the same time, the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom trailer had come out and somebody did a recut of that trailer where every time the T-Rex roared, it was Tom Cruise going, which is just, just great. Okay, so I think we've talked about The Mummy enough and, well, it's been quite an experience. But before we begin to wrap up our thoughts on this film, it's time to provide some stats and facts. So let's have a look over at the reception to this film from the critics and what this film made at the box office and for this week i'm going to begin with the box office so this film was made with a budget of and it's been reported as being anywhere from 125 million dollars to 190 million dollars which is the problem straight yeah. from the off like this is <laughs> as a mummy film it shouldn't be more than a hundred million dollars. It should be a mid-budget movie yeah, at best. Yeah, gives you a lot more freedom. Doesn't need to be a Tom Cruise vehicle. But in terms of the box office, the box office paints actually a rather positive story, which I didn't quite expect. Now, I will say up front: in America, things are dire. Mm. So the film was released and it made thirty-two million dollars at the box office in America, and it went on to make eighty million dollars in the U.S. total, which for a film that costs anywhere from 125 million to 190, I think it's probably towards a 190 million dollar budget. That's not good. You're not no. making your money back there. But overall, in terms of worldwide, Tom Cruise's star power more than anything, I would say more than the branding even, has pulled in a whopping 409 million dollars for this film. But in terms of the the films that this film was up against, once you see like how this film was positioned and what films it was positioned against. You start to see why they had the budget had. It was a Tom Cruise vehicle and that type of thing. So number one was Wonder Woman for the week. Number two was The Mummy. It debuted at number two. Number three, and I think this is its main competition, is Captain Underpants, the first (laughs) epic movie. (laughs) A lot of competition from Captain Underpants. A classic. (laughs) Yes, truly. How much more did Captain Underpants make last, like? Did it only just beat Captain Underpants? Actually, that is something worth looking at, isn't it, really? I'm going to find out now. Was it contentious between Captain Underpants and... (laughs) I wonder. It would have been great if it came third to Captain Underpants. The shared universe there as well. With Captain Thong and Captain (laughs) G-Spot. Captain (laughs) Strap-On. Captain Assless Chaps. (laughs) Captain Gimp Suit. (laughs) Captain Leathers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, Captain mm. Gooch Rot <laughs> 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 Captain Gooch Rot <laughs> Captain Edible Thong <laughs> oh, Captain Fish Yogurt <laughs> What? Oh, it's got grim. <laughs> okay, um, yes, so The Mummy. I was just uh, bringing that up now. Here we go. Domestic weekend. I'm going to see what Captain <laughs> Underpants made. Holy shit. Captain Underpants was in its second weekend. <laughs> so it's third in its second weekend. Yeah. Oh, my God. In its first weekend, Captain Underpants made 24 million, which is only like 8 million less <laughs> than The Mummy. Okay. 
So, yes, uh, number three was Captain <laughs> Underpants. So, yes, number four was... And this film, I feel like, is something of a spiritual successor to this film. It very much reminds me of it. It's uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, which is... Like, oh, Salazar's most... Revenge. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's Salazar's Revenge. Jesus. <laughs> that's the best bit in that film, because they have that scene before the title... And it's like, and they actually say "Dead Men Tell No Tales," so it go, it sieges nicely into the title. And then in the UK version, it goes Salazar's it Revenge. Salazar's Revenge. It's like, why? <laughs> why? I don't. And I, to this day, I will never understand why they changed the title of that film. I'm I'm surprised they didn't redub it. Oh like, yeah, wait, this tale will surely be Salazar's Revenge. Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> His lips don't match. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dead Men Tell No Tales. <laughs> 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 oh, that's definitely a one for another day. That one, it really is. Yeah. That's it's really like forget of the pirates films. Yeah, they get forgettable after the first three, but that one I can barely remember. Oh yeah, definitely. Of. And then we have at number five, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Number mm-hmm. six is, and hold yourself together, guys. It it comes at night is the name of the film <laughs> and it's it, it's a great film guys I, I saw this at the cinema it was fine it was me and two other guys we all had our pants oh, off right, it was yeah. okay the film was good and we all came at night it was uh. great um, <laughs> number seven it is actually a genuinely good film I quite enjoyed it it's one of the A24 horror films oh right yeah number seven is Baywatch number eight is Megan Levy I've never heard of that nope. one before Number nine is Alien Covenant, and number ten is Everything, Everything. Don't know what that is, but there we go. So, yeah, it was released, like, in the middle of the summer, so you've got a few blockbusters to go up against, and they've really positioned this as being that summer blockbuster when really it needed to be positioned as being, like, what a, a fuck you, it's January. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, that's everything, really, with the box office. Now, moving over to the critics' response. So, on Rotten Tomatoes, this film has a... The high score of 19% with a 4.22 out of 10 average rating. The consensus for the film is that lacking the campy fun of the franchise's most recent entries and failing to deliver many monster movie thrills, The Mummy suggests a speedy unravelling for the dark (laughs) universe. (laughs) (laughs) Snorf, snorf. I mean, they could have just said, makes The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor look good. (laughs) Like, yes <laughs> i mean i will say at least tomb of the dragon emperor like it's it's not good it's dull no. and forgettable but it at least has like the semblance of a script and a story and that type of thing it's a real movie <laughs> yeah exactly when you're talking about a rob cohen film as being the better version of something that's that's <laughs> when you're in trouble so yeah and i've yeah. picked two critic reviews both of them are from empire critics but this uh, kim newman is the first one i've used because kim newman is the monster movie guy he does that yeah he's the horror guy isn't he in empire yeah exactly he does kim newman's vhs dungeon or yeah. whatever it's called but this was a review that he wrote for sight and sound and he said like the 1999 mummy this is built around its leading man rather than its menace but Cruz cast as a generic redeemable rogue i.e unlikable asshole brings to the game less than Dick Foran did for a fraction of the cost in The Mummy's Hand, 1940. So I guess anybody that's seen The Mummy's Hand will know more about that than we do. (laughs) Yeah, so that is a very negative review. I read the whole thing. The whole thing is really negative. 
it's on front page of Rotten Tomatoes. I will say that I also used the Dan Jolan review from Empire, and this was far more positive. And he says, an odd but frothily entertaining genre cocktail. <laughs> he used frothily and cock in the same sentence. I really don't like the idea of using the adjective frothily entertaining. Like, describing something as frothily. Whereas I love it. <laughs> Definitely a frothy cock, anyway, but you know. <laughs> this film is brimming with spunk. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. I thought you were continuing uh, no, the no, sentence. No. <laughs> I think it's a different review you're reading there. Yeah. yeah. This thing is comments on you porn. Yeah, this yeah, this just ends with his email address. <laughs> <laughs> Written in a toilet wall. <laughs> Yeah, it's Dan Joel at XXX at Empire.com. Um, <laughs> so he says, an odd but frothily entertaining genre cocktail. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Which coasts on the charisma of its two biggest names and keeps things just fun enough to forgive its considerable lapse in narrative. And again, that's three out of five. I thought I'd go with a more positive review as well, just to offset how negative we've been today. It's prolapse in narrative. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> the gapes in this film's plot. <laughs> <laughs> Let out an unhindered waft of stench. <laughs> oh. And so the audience score for this film as well has it at 35% with a 2.8 out of 5 average rating. And so the critics have been harsh, the audience have been harsh, and even the IMDb score is actually it's a little bit higher than I expected at 5.4 out of 10. But this all round is a very negatively received film. Yeah. So, folks, that is really everything I have about The Mummy. The first and only Dark Universe cinematic <laughs> universe movie that's ever actually been released. Yeah. So, how do we feel now? Anybody have any final thoughts about The Mummy that they just want to ask before we sign off today? I would say, as time goes on, and we can look back at this era of filmmaking, I think this is almost, almost like a... Uh, it's almost there now as a warning to studios and, and filmmakers of how... Yeah not to go about it i mean even more so than like the dceu i mean which is obviously a very messy series in of itself but the fact that this uh i mean <clears throat> did the king king arthur came out in the same year or was it the year before it was same year it was actually in the top 12 it was number 12 at the date that this came out so like 2017 is like where this interest in yep. doing cinematic universes peaked and uh and just has died away yeah but yeah, I, I'm glad this craze ended, really. Like you say, it was just like, there's only one series that was doing it right, and that was just simply because they put the legwork in, and everybody was like counting the chickens before they hatched, trying to make the films, force a cinematic universe without doing the hard work first and just making the films work by themselves. But I think in a world in which like Marvel dominates at the moment, and so does Star Wars, and that's all cinematic universe shit, the way to stand out at the moment is to not be a cinematic universe for me. Yeah. That's more refreshing for me than seeing something where I have to see about seven other films to understand what's going on. It's funny that mentioning now that the the film that was the successor of this dark universe, which was The Invisible Man, yeah. which came out earlier this year, it's the exact opposite of what they were doing with this film. 
and um, yes. managed to make a very tidy profit considering it was only out in the theatres for four weeks before it got pulled because of COVID. Yeah, I mean, it, it did really well. I've got to say, before we even sign off, we haven't talked about The Invisible Man. Is it, have either of you seen The Invisible Man? I've not seen it yet. Just a point on that before we move on. Um, it's amazing how people don't tend to comment that much on the influence of the Marvel Cinematic Universe on the audience. People tend to always talk about first the influence on other studios. Yeah. But the amount of films I've seen now where people will sit during the credits because they're now starting to expect an after or mid credit scene yeah. from any and every film, like your average sort of um, cinema viewer. Yeah. I've just noticed that's becoming more and more. And then when, when there isn't one, or if they, because most of the time they're not watching the, the credits, they're not looking at who's involved and so on, are they? Mm-hmm. When there isn't one, they look generally like a weird mixture of confusion and disappointment. Like, <laughs> like they thought that something should have been there and they've, and they've sort of grown to learn to be like that. They, they've just, <laughs> it, it's like Pavlov uh, with the bell, right? Yeah, Pavlov's dog, yeah. It's just funny to see that, that it's not only affecting how other studios and how they're making their films and what they think is working and stuff like that, but it's also affecting the people who watch the films like, and what they expect. Yeah. And maybe if they see a standalone film, they don't like it as much or don't get it because it seems that people are more enjoying binging Netflix with an ongoing character arc that has more time than two hours to, say, develop. Um, yeah. Not that it's right or wrong, different different things, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps, do you think the audience is getting to a point where they genuinely expect these cinematic sort of universes from every studio? In some way, I get what you're saying, but I think that's also more towards like, Marvel have certainly groomed people to want more marketing, I would say, hmm. rather than cinematic universes. They've, it's groomed audiences to think that there needs to be more than the film that we've actually seen. Like There needs to be more than the film. When it comes to these kind of big budget films, at least, that when a film has finished, by the end of the credits, we want to see the trailer for the next thing. And that's what Marvel essentially do with their... Um, well, that's initially what they did with their after credit sequences for the longest time, is that you go see Iron Man... And then there'd be a trait like a, a little snippet of Nick Fury turning up to promise Avengers, and then you see the Incredible Hulk, and then Iron Man would turn up to market the Avengers, and it's like I think that's what audiences now are expecting. It's not so much the cinematic universes or a tease for more connection with another spin-off. It's more so that they just want, oh well, this film's finished now. Where's the trailer for the next thing? Where's the hint at the next thing? And I think that's actually, in my opinion, kind of damaging for films. But I'm not saying that that is Marvel's fault. That has worked for Marvel, and it's a comic book trope in many ways. You know, you finish one issue, there's an issue out, there's a, there's a little advertisement, a little snippet, a little preview of the next issue and that type of thing. Yeah. And they're taking that to the big budget level. But on a scale like when people are expecting it for the likes of Alien Covenant or that type of thing, it's like, it becomes actually kind of damaging. Yeah. Mm. And I think it, it, has, it has changed the way in which a certain type of audience, I would say at least, approach and consume their marketing material for a film and how they approach each film they expect to be marketed to before the film has finished before that experience has ended interesting bit of a diversion there sorry guys yeah (laughs) no but but an interesting one nonetheless and i think in in the world of the mummy because the mummy is all marketing it's not about story it's not about the film itself the whole film is all marketing for look what we're doing with the rest of this universe if you'll just then you know come back it's always about promising the next film along rather than giving you something in this experience now. Yeah, absolutely. 
And The Mummy is the fall down. It's the collapse of that idea of filmmaking. And I'm glad it failed. I'm really glad it failed. <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that Marvel have to change. I like and don't like what Marvel do in, you know, from film to film. I always approach them individually anyway. I really think that they've hit a consistency. And I'm kind of glad that we're having a bit of a Marvel break, especially after Endgame now. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Because it gives them more time to kind of like build up in terms of uh, give it time to breathe, give them more time to build up for whatever they're doing next thing. Give them also more time to kind of decide what they're going to do as well with that. But that just has to be Marvel. Not everybody has to be Marvel. In a world in which everybody's Marvel. Yeah. And and it's like what they did with Star Wars as well. They instantly tried to turn it into a Marvel cinematic universe. Not everything needs to be a cinematic universe. Just let these films breathe. However, I think now post-Endgame, I think Marvel are going to start having a bit of trouble here and there because you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna say this is really weird but i feel like now they've had endgame this is like twin peaks when they solved the murder of laura palmer and didn't follow <laughs> up with anything yeah else. yeah i get you so yeah i i think so if you know what i mean they've not seeded in anything to replace it and they should have done it before they ended the other thing yeah it looks a bit directionless and when i went to see tenet the other day they had a load of trailers and they showed the black widow trailer and it was easily the the least interesting out of all the trailers that they played it was the least remarkable it just felt very much like more of the same i keep forgetting there's a black widow movie coming out and people were talking oh it's like this espionage and i was like no it's just another marvel movie Mm -hmm. it's it's not anything particularly special looking when you've got films like no time to die in june and in the roster it's like "Mm." i want to give it a chance though i mean because of its placement now after Endgame, maybe it is just a flashback and sort of kind of a flashback film to her character. And and because she is a powerless one, it's, you know, it's, it's more grounded. The film's more grounded with with a little bit of the th- yeah. sort of theatrical comic character sort of tinge to it. But, but still. I mean, I'm definitely going to see Black Widow, but I think there's the opportunity there for them to make a statement with what the Marvel film is going to be in a post-Endgame world. And I think there's the opportunity for them to say, you know what, we we got fixed in making the films a certain way for the longest time in the build-up to Endgame that actually, at times, on a couple of films along the journey, we became a slave to the Endgame mythology. Now we're free of that, we can really set the mark and really like establish what we're going to be in a post-Endgame world. I hope that Black Widow does make that statement. I really do. I don't think the trailers are the greatest trailers in the world that we've seen. They're serviceable. But, uh, and, but I'm certainly going to see the film. I'm certainly going to see the film and see what, what is next in the Marvel arsenal. Mm-hmm. One last thing, as we're going to mention, did anybody actually see The Invisible Man? Because The Invisible Man is very much a response to the failure of The Mummy. I watched it and I loved it. Yeah, I, I think it's probably my favourite film of this year. That I, I mean, I only saw about three films at the cinema, but um, that is probably my favourite film of this year. Throughout Invisible Man, there was a fantastic sense of fear and dread for yes. me. Yes. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Went full skeletal then. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I would have got away with it if it wasn't for Johnny Pistachio. <laughs> How have we got to this point so quickly? Uh. <laughs> yeah, and all the performances were great. I think technically it was very well done. Mm-hmm. The score and, and the cinematography was just chef's kiss. Yes, it absolutely. Was, it was delicious. It was a great, great delicious. <laughs> so I was thinking it was just chefs and food. <laughs> it, it was it was fantastic for me from start to finish. And, and I thought the, the lead actress... Um, Elizabeth Moss... Oh, she's just great. 
Absolutely. She is. And, and again, it's another uh, Universal Monster movie uh, led by a Scientologist. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but no, no, but I think she's excellent in that film. And again, the cinematography, the the music, mainly as well, it doesn't treat its audience like it, like idiots. It's a mature film, but not in the way that it's all gore, blood and guts, but just in the way that it expects you to get it without lots of flash and bang. As you mentioned, mm-hmm. there's a sense of dread and foreboding throughout, yeah. but with even just the, a simple camera move. And it understands that the audience is clever enough to buy into this world without there being an elaborate set piece or that type of thing. And it does have its moments of, mm-hmm. of elaborate set pieces. It does pay off those moments really, really well, but it feels like a very grown-up monster movie, and I love that. Do you know, for me, they actually took a page out of Final Destination's book in that when they were looking at the character, yeah, well, they wouldn't see him because he's invisible, lol. But when they were when they were looking at, at the character and what makes him scary, they translate that very well from page to um, screen because a lot of the time when she's in a room, you're not necessarily looking at her. Yeah, you're looking around the room for anything that's moving or being sat on or or a curtain that he could potentially be near or a switch that is being pressed. Yeah, by an invisible thing and you're looking around and there's always those shots of the room like a POV shot from her yeah. and you're just you're just looking around it quickly like as it's a, yeah. um, a, like it's a where's Wally like that's the thing that the invisible man's got presence in yeah. every shot and it's uh, well, yeah it's, it's all about exactly. the negative space it's all about the use of negative space in that film and that's what makes it so terrifying because she can be in any environment and he could be in the distance or he could be right up close yeah he could be sat in the car you don't know him. as much as she doesn't know yeah and I don't know that that brought the sort of thrillery fear for me, and all that for seven million dollars. What it was made for seven just seven million. million. Was yeah, the budget. Yeah, holy fuck! So wow. Luke Wanell as a director as well. Like he made another film previously called Upgrade, and that was made for even like less than that for like two million dollars. But it's got this like huge sense of a world, same type of camera work and that type of thing. So expertly done. Does so much with so little. I can see how with $7 million that he just, like, what he managed to do with The Invisible Man. And I, I can't wait to see what he does further because obviously they're bringing him on board for further films in this Universal Monster movie. I think he's doing another monster movie next. It's something with Ryan Gosling, is it? Uh, yeah. Another making a Wolfman movie with Ryan Gosling. There's, there's quite a few on the list in the planning stages now, but I think this is the direction that they are going in. And thank fuck for that because Absolutely. we need, like, I think... <laughs> I, I don't I just genuinely I I've never understood this whole need to spend lots of money on on a film and it's like a yeah. and gamble so high. It's like a badge of honor to some studios like we've got to spend this money. Why? Why I do you have to I spend that I money? I never understood it. There's no reason a mummy no. film needed a 0G fucking action sequence. No. <laughs> no, they don't spend smart. No. Do they? That's it. Yeah, yeah. I think it just goes to show how out of touch they can be. It was only in the cinemas for four weeks, The Invisible Man, and it made like 135, 137 million. And then it got released on VOD and has made us yeah. God knows how much more. Yeah, apparently it was a real success story for that. And Blumhouse and Universal are just overjoyed with Lee Wanell as a director. So yeah. he's he's one of the most interesting talents in, in horror at the moment. And I cannot wait to see what he does next. Hopefully films like The Mummy and the whole baggage that it carries are now relics of the past. Yeah. And hopefully things like, you know, The Invisible Man and, and the way that's been made and, and everything yeah. can, you know, shine a light towards, a, you know, a slightly more economical future that leans more on a film just being good for its own sake and not having to spend mm-hmm. a shitload of money on it. Like, I, 
hopefully a more sort of 1970s perspective on how films are made. Yeah, definitely. We just need to get these films and put them all in like a topaz tomb and put them in a bath of mercury (laughs) and hope hope that a one-dimensional arsehole character doesn't one day find them and screen them. (laughs) And shoot one single rope. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I think that's where we're going to leave it for the mummy. And if you do join us next week, we're going to be ramping up the horror atmosphere, I would say, in the build-up to Halloween as we're reviewing Halloween 3, the one without Michael Myers. Season of the Witch. Season of the Witch. Um, I cannot wait to review this film. I actually saw it at the cinema. Not on its original release. Yeah, because, man, you, you, know, you was like well old. then. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I did see it at a festival not too long ago, so I'm really looking forward to review this for the uh, episode. But just before we do move on to that, I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us today, Aidan. It's been a pleasure to have you once more. Pleasure is all mine. A lot of um, fun and lols and a dive into a fantastic film once again. And flying dicks. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you do bring a real like sense of class to the <laughs> podcast. and I'm, re- I'm really glad about that, you know. My absolute pleasure. <laughs> no thanks guys it's great well i will say thank you for listening i've been gareth and i've been andy cool (laughs) bye-bye